I'm Kayla Holland, and you're listening to Edupalooza Talks, a special podcast series from Break Free Education. We're proud to share this podcast series as a component of our Break Free Edupalooza, an online professional development conference for educators in juvenile justice facilities across the country. In this podcast, we're joined by Eden Nelson, Elisa Flores, and Scott Schultz. Scott, Eden, and Elisa are here to talk about implementing technology into juvenile justice facilities. Eden Nelson is an endpoint engineer with Cascade Technology Alliance and has been providing services for juvenile justice facilities for 14 years with the Oregon Department of Education and Youth Authority. Elisa Flores works as an instructional technology coach for CYFD in New Mexico. Scott Schultz has been a juvenile justice educator for over 20 years at Copper Lake and Lincoln Hills Schools in Wisconsin. Currently, he serves as a tech coach and has responsibilities for teaching math, special education, and serves as the school librarian. We loved what they had to say about creating a layered system, starting small by piloting Chromebooks in smaller classes, and being present for teachers as they begin to try new things with technology in their classroom. Eden, Elisa, and Scott, thank you all so much for joining us today as a part of our interview series for Edge of Palooza. We like to begin these podcasts by getting to know you, so let's start from the very beginning. Eden, can you quickly share how you began working in the education field? Yeah, I actually started as an intern in a school district in the year 2000. I was given an opportunity to interview and go and inventory computers that summer and a few other things and and learn a lot about computers, and that evolved into a permanent position, and then that evolved into being an analyst, and then system administrator, engineer, and and so on, and and then I ended up at Multnomah Education Service District and Cascade Technology Alliance, and kind of stumbled into working in youth correction facilities. Wow, so you've literally kind of worked your way up (laughs) through all of those titles, I should say. Elisa, how about you? How did you come to work in the field of education? Well, there was a a variety of different life circumstances. I I did get married young and my husband at the time was a teacher, but it also came to a point where I had to decide what I was going to finish my degree in. And I always loved math. I loved doing it. I loved helping people with it. And it turned out I loved to teach it. So it just made sense when I made that decision about my degree that I would get it in teaching mathematics. So starting out as a math teacher. That's great. So how did you shift from math teacher into technology coach? So I guess it started about five years ago where I had the opportunity to move out of the classroom and I was able to support the teachers in general and all instruction. And I just most recently, because of the pandemic, moved into instructional technology. And Scott, how about you? How did you wind up having a career in education? Yeah, hello. When I got out of college, I was kind of in between, did I want to do computer science work or did I want to teach? So what my life journey went, I worked for a company initially that was contracted to work on the network where I work now. And I was a computer tech. So as part of that job, I service the education network here at the facility and the administrative network along with the other sites throughout the state. And eventually the facility here caught wind that I had a teacher license. 
And then they said, hey, why don't you apply? We'll hire you on as, as a teacher and you can you know, work on the tech stuff and teach classes here. So that's kind of where the two things I like doing, I guess, married up. So in addition to technology, I uh, like doing math too. I'm good at the analytical side. So that's how I started here. We're going here to modern day. This would be my uh, third generation of a network here um, since I've been here. So it's been a while. Wow. I love to hear how you've all started. I tend to call that an accidental journey when we started somewhere and we've just kind of accidentally ended up in the current roles that we are. So I appreciate you all sharing that. I'm very thankful that each of you could join us today and talk about implementing technology in juvenile justice facilities. We all know there are so many obstacles to implementing tech from infrastructure to implementation to providing professional development for teachers. And I think our, our chat today is going to talk a little bit about each of those three areas. So I'd love to start with Eden and talk a little bit about the infrastructure. So Eden, what do you think when a facility first decides they want to implement technology in their space? Where do they start? Well, I think they need to reach out to the education community like Break Free or myself or whoever might be in the region who's done it before can give some advice on what they're really getting into. It's a very noble thing to do. It's very much what needs to happen, but it's a complex journey from basically going from a very limited technology in the classroom to where we like to be, which is as close to equitable with a everyday school. And so, so re really reaching out and finding out what you're getting into. And it's actually not that costly monetarily, but it does take a lot of like maybe human strength to go through it and keep saying, yes, 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 we're going to do this and not let folks who just say, oh, well, that's impossible. Keep you from achieving the goal of close, if not perfect parity with those everyday schools that we want to get to. Yeah, I love that because there are so many decisions that you have to make, a facility has to make when they're deciding, yes, we want to implement technology, but you know, do we have the infrastructure? Do we have the access points? Are they going to be in just the education side or in the living units? And there's all those decisions along the way. And there's always that balance between, you know, um, opening an app for creativity versus like keeping kids safe with restrictions. And so I love that you said it's strength of human, <laughs> almost uh, human capital to just decide we're going to do this. Here are our positive reasons for why or our powerful reasons for why and we're going to push forward. I um, mean, not really leading with, we can't do that because it's impossible. We're really leading with that idea of we can and we're going to make it work. So that's really, that's really helpful. In my life as a computer guy or computer person, you know, there's a lot of computer people that will say no. And I've always tried to approach my job with the yes, but, you know, it's it's not no, you can't do that. It's yes, but we might have to adjust what results that you believe you're going to be able to get or that we're able to produce for you or what I'm going to be able to get into your classroom. but. We'll get you something, if not exactly what you asked for. Yeah, I love that mentality, that starting with, yes, but let's make sure that we're living in a realistic idea of what can happen. 
I know that I've heard you talk a lot about a layered approach to building a system that allows students to be creative, but also keep them safe. So can you talk a little bit about that ideal layered approach and what programs facilities might be able to implement there? Yeah, well, let me talk about why we need to go layered to begin with. In a youth correctional facility, you have a lot of safety that you have to take into mind. The safety of the student from themselves, the safety of the student from other students in the facility, safety of the community from the student, safety of the student from potentially victimizers or other folks that are in the community. We have to address all these different safety directions. I I guess I kind of call it a direction. Like it's all these different safety issues that we have to address. So when you're looking at it from that perspective, yeah, you're going to think, well, one thing is not going to keep us safe. And then in addition, when we're talking about technology, technology is ever expanding and growing and changing. And so if you can take multiple technologies to keep students safe and overlap them as they kind of grow and move around, hopefully you can kind of keep the holes that might be opened up in one technology, one solution, and keep everything secure and safe for the student. Like for filtering, we try to do on the device filtering through Google Admin, if we're using a Google device, as well as a DNS-based filtering, as well as like a cloud-based filtering like Deladeo. And I try to describe that as a V-shaped filtering system where you put the most, you know, this is never going to be allowed at that bottom. And that's very set in stone. And then at the top, you have a web-based filtering like Deladeo where a teacher could potentially allow students to view a, say, a Huffington Post article that was relevant for that day, but not open it up permanently and so on. So you you try to do the most rigid at the bottom and the most flexible at the top. So that's just an example of one of the ways that we layer technology solutions to keep students safe. Another is like using SafeDoc and a data leak protection program, DLP, in combination to stop sharing and conversations between students, which in most facilities is verboten. Yeah, and I know like that sounds really complex when you're talking about all of those things kind of working together. And I know that's why you like to talk about it as a layered approach. And I think it's important to go back to that mindset of we've decided to do this, you know, yes, but yes, we're going to do this, but let's make sure we're adding in these things that work because a lot of facilities have programs that they create that works for them. And, you know, facilities aren't exactly the same. They're always set up differently and that's okay. You just need to make sure that you're really putting the student needs first. So are they able to access technology? Are they doing creative things? You know, are they accessing education that's relevant and meaningful, but are they staying safe at the same time? To that point, when I approach this, I try to approach it as let's give as many learning opportunities as possible, right? It's not, how do I lock this student down so that they can't do anything? It's how do I keep them safe? Keeping them safe, you know, I should add keeping them safe in the world and their life at the end kind of, because that's another aspect where, you know, you need to let them 
sometimes get on Google and Google, you know, an insect or an animal or a turtle or whatever that might be, and give them that learning opportunity that might spring a life passion and something that they might be able to do after they get out of the situation that they've found themselves in at this point. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, we talk a lot too about shaping behavior, right? Because we talk about creating responsible use policies that teachers can create in the classroom or a facility can create for every classroom. And it's really about students learning to be responsible digital citizens, you know, so that when they make those mistakes, you're able to pull them aside and talk through that mistake, do some restorative practices, repair that behavior so that, like you said, once they have been released, they've learned from that. And when they're out in the world, they can use technology in appropriate ways then as well. I really think that the practice of taking technology away 100%, it really is not constructive. What does that do for the student? Oh, I don't have to do work today, basically. Oh, I get to sit here and not do anything, or I go back to the living unit or whatever it might be. Even in in an average school, I just don't think that it's the correct way of, of approaching Technology. Technology is there every day as soon as you leave the school when you're released. Having it taken away from you completely doesn't make a positive difference. Pulling back what they are able to do and to a very limited set of programs or online resources or or whatever it might be, and they see that after a period of time, they get back all those privileges and, and are able to do the more fun things the math game, you know, or whatever it might be. Right. And, you know, students don't always learn in the same time frame. So a student who might, you know, need some repairing behavior for a day is great. Then another student might need that repairing behavior for a couple of days or a week. And so it's important to remember that not all students learn the same. But thank you so much for for sharing that, Eden. We're going to move to implementation. So once you've decided that you're going to have technology in your space and you've looked at the infrastructure and you've got this wonderful layered approach built in so students can be creative and also kept safe, then Scott, can you talk a little bit about once that's in place, what are those next steps? How do you plan for the implementation of devices? Yeah, that's a good question. So... Once those items are in place, I felt that what was best for us is to come up with a a list of an agreeable set of standards that we're looking for for the system. And we spent a lot of time talking, you know, between teachers, admin, and technology staff on trying to agree on what that phase looks like for us that we could all be supportive of. So once we were able to do that, it took some time to get that kind of access in place. And then we took a segment of our school and we started rolling out a a pilot to one or two classes and to see how the students would react to it and how, to be honest, how the system would work, if there are any holes that were in there that could be found, that type of thing. I should mention, though, before we did that, I took the opportunity too to try to see if what was put together from the tech plan, if those requirements were met on the technology and those those things were able to work. But getting back to the pilot, so what we did is we, I think it was about a month, we let a group 
try it, test it out, see where we could find the, the weaknesses. And, and there were some that were missed and that's going to happen. Like Eden was saying there. So once we got beyond that, we fixed all those things and we rolled it out to the rest of the school and a, another school that's offsite. Since then, it, it seems to be working good. That's great. So what I'm really hearing there is is kind of start small and start with that pilot and work with, you know, a couple of kids in one class and then roll that out to a larger group. Yeah, and you're right. And the other thing is, too, is to work with a subset of teachers, maybe a, a group of teachers that, you know, they're willing to use it in their classroom, willing to give it a shot and see what it looks like. And as you guys are talking about before, if things happen, we're going to know that things may happen. But to find, uh, you know, solutions to those things and educate the students, too, you know, about, like I said, about being a good digital citizen. Yeah, that's true. I know, too, Scott, that you are in a unique role in that you are a teacher and also a tech guru. So I like to call you a, a tech liaison because I know you kind of speak to both of those groups. So could you talk a little bit about how you work with the technology side of the facility? Because I know in a lot of places we have our education staff and they kind of run things with education. But when you're talking about using technology, the facility staff has to get involved as well. So can you talk a little bit about that relationship and how that works? Sure. So what I try to do is get what the teachers are interested in using in their classrooms. And you know, write it down. I actually have a Google Sheet where I keep all this stuff. So it's available for any time when I meet with the tech people. With the tech people, we had weekly meetings for maybe half an hour to an hour and discuss the progress of it. And then I try to translate to them why is this important or why is this a need that a teacher is perceiving to try to, you know, get them the little peek behind the teacher curtain, so to speak, right, of what we're trying to accomplish in, in our classroom. So that's what I really see my role as. So when I talk to teachers, I try to explain maybe what the tech people are thinking. And when I talk to the tech people to try to explain what looks like in the classroom, what we're trying to accomplish. That's really important because I think people have to remember there's different perspectives. There's the tech people and the teachers and the students and everybody's coming in with different backgrounds and, you know, a different way of approaching things. So when it's really important to remember those different perspectives and how long, like the tech people have been working for a year to get just this one thing in. And, you know, the teachers might be a little frustrated that it's happening slower than they thought. But in reality, it goes back to that. Yes, but that Eden was talking about your tech folks are really trying to be encouraging and saying, yes, we'll make this happen, but let's kind of look at these other details. So I think remembering those perspectives are important. Yeah, at times there are frustration with the teaching staff about things not going as fast as maybe we would like them to go. So that's part of the translation too, letting letting the staff know, yes, they are working on it. They have people on it and it, it does take time. And to be honest, it's a learning curve for the, the tech people too, because the Google system that we're using is something that's new to our, our state to be using. So there's a learning curve for them. It's good to mention that to people that, you know, they're learning too, and, and they're working hard as they can. And like you said, they are supportive of trying to get this going. Yeah. So can you share an interesting example of how technology is being used in the classroom in your space after all of this? everything's implemented and everything's going well. What are some creative things kids are doing? 
I tell you, I got a group of kids in my class. They really own their education and they, they advocate for themselves and they request things for their educational benefit to happen. So this may sound kind of simple, but I, I think it's really neat. We use the Google platform to communicate back and forth with each other. So not only do they get to communicate with me during the 45-minute class period, but outside of that period, if they want to reach out to me, if they have a question, we have a Google Doc that we share between each other. And I can write them, they can write me, and I can get more stuff done for them you know, to satisfy whatever need that they have in the classroom. I, I think that's really awesome. And, and the kids love it too, because they, they know that I, I look at that and they trust me to look at that when I can and allows for them to keep progressing in their work. And the one particular group that I'm thinking about, you know, they work after school and they work during their study halls here and they just want to keep working and do the best that they can to get the most out of their time here. That's been really awesome. I, I really like that. And some of the fonts on a side note that they have are kind of interesting too. So show some creativity. Some of the fonts. That's really that's yeah. really good. It sounds like you're just building a really strong relationship with your students and they are invested in their learning because you're invested in their learning. And I think that's really simple. But when they don't have trust in their teacher and that relationship isn't there, that's kind of the foundation for them moving forward and really being invested in their own education. So that's a really good place to start. Yeah, you're so right. The rapport and trust level I have with that group in particular is it's just amazing. I, I tell them right out, I enjoy the time. I'm just kind of the person on the sideline and they're controlling their educational ship and they know where they want to go. It's really nice. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. So once Chromebooks are implemented, we move into how do we provide professional development for them? So we're going to talk a little bit with Elisa Flores. So Elisa, how do you create a training plan for teachers to feel comfortable using this technology in the classroom? Well, creating a training plan can be tricky and it does take a lot of thought. I asked for input from a lot of different areas and a lot of different people, including administration teachers even other instructional technology experts like Break Free. And when I looked at developing the training plan for the teachers here, I looked at what they might find the most useful and be able to easily implement into their lessons and classroom. And that's basically because there's such a wide range of technical ability and skills. And there are going to be some teachers that want to start using this new technology immediately. While there's quite a few that are still going to be really reluctant to use it at all. So I decided that starting small would be the best and choosing what's the most relevant. And that's been key to keeping the teachers from becoming overwhelmed because I know that had been brought up as an issue and we didn't want to overwhelm the teachers at all. So making sure that it was very targeted and deliberate in the way that it was rolled out and any information that was provided was going to be useful. Still starting small, but also still providing opportunities for those more advanced teachers to have access to those resources that would allow them to incorporate more complex instructional strategies, um, technology strategies into their lessons and classrooms. Yeah, that's really important. What I'm really kind of taking away from what you're saying is that it's about communication and teachers need to know, like, this is the journey we're going to be on for the next couple of months. And we're hoping to get everyone 
from this level to the next level or whatever you're on to the next level, but it's all about communicating to them. This is what our expectation is, but then backing up that communication with actual action. So you're coming alongside those teachers and training them. You're meeting with them, especially those low tech teachers. I know they often have so much fear around putting technology into their classroom, but if you come alongside them, then you know, oftentimes you can alleviate some of that fear. Also, I think just letting them know, like you said, communication, that they'll be supported at whatever level they are at. So I I can meet them where they are and then help them go on to the next level. Yeah, that's important. I know too, another thing to deal with when implementing Chromebooks is just managing the devices. So once everything's kind of in place and things are rolling, what does a typical device management program look like? Well, I know here, since it was all new to us, I I look at a lot of maintaining the devices and keeping inventory of where they're at. We had certain Chromebook carts where the Chromebooks have to be kept. So it's monitoring where they're at and who has them and actually trying to strategically decide where they would be placed. Then since teachers really didn't know how to incorporate them into their classrooms, also just providing them with daily and weekly checkout forms so that they kind of give them that assurance that they know which students using that device in their class. And so I kind of went and assigned the students those devices ahead of time so they didn't have to do that work on their own. And then this also kind of helped keep the students accountable. They know that that's the device that's checked out to them. So they know that if something's wrong with it, they might be held accountable for any damages or anything that happened to the device while they're using it. I also look at monitoring their daily use. I know Eden had mentioned with like the cloud programs like Deladeo. So I get like those reports that let me know about violations and certain things. So I communicate well with the administration, letting them know like what's going on daily with those reports. I also provide support with Hopra. So I help the teachers with setting up their focus sessions when they know that they're going to be using the Chromebooks in their classroom for that day. And then help them monitor the students' online activity and and looking up things in their Google Drives as well. I also have been in charge of creating new student accounts and managing their passwords. So I always have to have that readily available for teachers whenever they ask. Because, you know, you share it with them, but then sometimes they can't find it right away. So (laughs) things happen. So just basically making sure that I'm present and always available when, when they need me for any kind of support like that. And then a lot of times just support not only inside, but outside of the classroom. So if they're looking to troubleshoot any issues they came across or in planning a lesson with the Chromebook or trying to incorporate any of that technology, they want to just try out little things in any of their lessons. I can meet with them outside of the class time so that we can discuss how they want to set that up and plan. Or if they did try something, then we can also set up a time to discuss what they might do differently or what they might change for the next time. Wow. You have very, you have a lot of roles (laughs) and a lot of them, it sounds like you're just, you're kind of just present, right? And you're there to help the teachers. And I know your role specifically as a tech coach is really unique in a JJ facility. And I know Scott is kind of that teacher and tech liaison, but Obviously, after hearing all of the ways that you manage devices, it's so important to have someone either part-time like Scott or full-time like you, that is their main role. They are there to be the tech coach. They provide professional development. They're working on you know, a training plan for teachers, but they're managing the devices because 
it's a full-time job. Like you just explained, you said five or six different things that you're doing on a regular basis to keep the program up to date and running. So I know that's a really important role. Can you share an interesting example of tech being used? I know that technology in your space is pretty new. Chromebooks were just rolled out not too long ago. So can you share an interesting example of how teachers have started using it in their classroom? Since I'm new to this area as well, this is my first year of working in this kind of secure facility. I've learned a lot of things too. And I noticed that one teacher, they have MDT meetings, so multidisciplinary team meetings monthly. And they actually asked the teachers to provide notes for these. So starting small, she decided to ask the students to actually reflect weekly on their own behavior and actually set their own goals for the week. So she set that up in her Google Classroom. And I think it's something that she's found convenient. I mean, before she would have to actually ask the kids to write this down and then it would have to be transcribed and then entered into a database. And now with like this technology, she can actually ask other people to help like a teacher aide or, you know, it's something that she can actually share that burden and she doesn't have to take it all on herself. And it's actually more convenient. Like it's a lot easier to access that information. And it actually puts a lot of ownership too on the students because they're responsible for reflecting on their own behavior and determining what they're going to do as far as their next steps to correct it. So it's interesting in how she converted that into something that she could use with technology, but also how she also created this task for the students to do that, created their own like ownership for their own learning. I love the practicality of that example because that is really what technology is supposed to do. It's supposed to enhance what you're able to do in the classroom and maybe even you know redefine that task in some way. So I love that she's able to dive right in and using that in a very practical, real way that helps her be not only just a more efficient teacher, but it's also helping students take ownership of their of their own learning and saying, you know, these are my MDT notes and I'm taking ownership of that. So that's really powerful. So it's been really great to have you all on today to talk with me about implementing tech in juvenile justice facilities. So I really appreciate you taking the time to join me. But as we close out, we're asking all of our guests on the podcast if they have a favorite podcast or website or newsletter or book that you really enjoy that you'd recommend to others. It can be work-related or one that you just enjoy personally. So I wonder if you guys have some you'd like to share. Scott, what about you? Yeah, for me, I was thinking of the book Tech Like a Pirate by Matt Miller. It gives all kinds of examples, especially if you're just starting to uh, use the tech in your facility of how to use it to engage your students. And some of the parts, uh, I remember one thing in particular, I guess, is, you know, kids like social media and things like that, and maybe developing some of your lessons so that it kind of looks like social media, but it's not. So it's current to them. That, that'd yeah, be my I love book. that. Great. Um, Eden, what about you? Do you have a favorite thing that you like to read or watch or listen to to share? Mine's a podcast is called Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. And the episodes are up to like two or three hours long. And he goes into intense descriptions of what happened in an event or a series of events over time. His explanation of the beginning of World War I was amazing to me. 
and I've, I've never been too much into history, but the way he presents history and the details, and it just clicks with the way my brain works, I guess. So that's my suggestion. That's great. I haven't heard of that one, so I'm definitely taking notes over here. Elisa, what about you? Do you have something you'd like to share? Well, I actually commute to work daily. I have quite a, a long commute, <laughs> so I have a, a several that I actually listen to. I just simple like TED Talks or TED Talks education, stuff you should know, true crime. Um, I think all of those pretty interesting, but so I try to get something that'll make the time pass faster as I get to work. But I think they're all pretty interesting, entertaining, and I don't know, I, I enjoy all of them. Yeah, that's good. Definitely make make use of that of that long drive. All right. So our last question here, we like to close out our podcast with advice. So I'm wondering if there's any advice or wisdom you'd like to share with other educators who might be listening. Elisa, what about you? I would say that you're never alone and don't be afraid to reach out. I know that I had to learn that quickly. Like I didn't know the answers to a lot of things, which I know I didn't have to, but still I felt like I'm supposed to know more than I think I do. So I just think you shouldn't be afraid to reach out. And there's always someone else that might be going through the same thing or that might have a solution for you. So then you can work together and find an answer. Wow. I love that. That's, that's powerful. You're never, you're never alone. We often feel like we're kind of siloed, but we're not. So just, so just reach out. Eden, would you like to share any final words of wisdom? I would just say, you know, don't give up and don't listen to people that say it's impossible. It's always possible. It just hasn't been done yet or not done where you're doing it. And to echo Alisa, reach out and find the people who have almost done it or done it similarly. And you can bring it back to where you are and get it done. And we know you can do it. You're an educator. You know, you're, you're a strong person and, and you can. I love that. I say educators are rock stars. So I definitely agree with you on that. And Scott, what about you? Uh, for me, I thought of three things. One, patience. Not everything is going to be ready. Perhaps when you want it, it's a process to work with others and maybe get some better ideas about where the direction should be going. So patience is important. You know, like I said before, explaining the why to get buy-in from others. Why is this needed? Why is this important to put people's time into it? And, you know, you have the investment of your tech staff, the investment of your teaching staff, the investment of the admin too, right, to support that. And uh, the last thing is collaboration. We have really made a lot of progress working with our other partners, like uh, Eden, for example, of, you know, people that have been through the implementation of something like this and have been using, you know, Google and other products for a number of years and it really helps, well, one, we have somebody else to talk to, to collaborate with, but two, you know, they've, they've been through it. They know what the holes are, maybe some potential fixes or other remedies to, to make it safe for everybody. Yeah, that's wonderful. Really utilizing the experience of others and reaching out. That's excellent. Well, I really appreciate you all joining me today. And I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing words of wisdom and, and all the advice that you've given on how to implement technology in juvenile justice facilities. A huge thank you to Elisa, Scott, and Eden, and to you listeners for joining us today for this short podcast as part of our Edupalooza conference. 
We're grateful for all the educators out there doing the incredible work of making school happen inside juvenile facilities, especially during challenging times. Thank you for listening to Edupalooza Talks, a break-free education podcast. Music for this podcast was written and produced by students at the J.C. Montgomery School, located inside Kings County Juvenile Detention Center in Central California, as a part of Unsung, Break Free Education's annual songwriting initiative for students held in confinement. Edupalooza Talks podcast is produced by our friend and colleague, Christine Anjoko. Trying to show the fam I got him, don't know how to live. I'm really trying to do my best, I guess it ain't enough. I don't know who to trust, more hope and broken up. I'm trying to keep a smile up, but I've been feeling now. Better tell me, gotta watch who I be riding with. I didn't listen, now I'm back up in the fire pit. They put me in this cage, and they expect change. But it only made me worse, and y'all the ones to blame. I gotta take a second, I gotta catch a man. Cause I be sitting 192, and it isn't fair. Would you come to switch position? No, you wouldn't dare. It's crazy how they got my life, and I'm just in a chair. Life could change at any moment, and I'm well aware. All these emotions building up, and you just can't compare. They got me like an institution, and the devil's lair. I'm just glad I got my brother with me every tear. Feeling my feeling, my feeling. No, no, I'm feeling, I'm feeling, I'm feeling.